Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Helping Hands of Our Community, addressing the social determinants of health podcast, where we highlight the incredible work of individuals, agencies, and organizations who are committed to creating healthy and thriving communities through their community-engaged work. Thank you for taking time to support us by tuning in, listening, and learning. I'm Roger Zakupe, and with me, as always, the amazing Drew Reynolds. Good afternoon, Drew. How's life in Hotlanta? Man, Roger, life here in Atlanta is amazing. And I am super pumped for this podcast because we have an awesome guest today, Dr. Carrie Revens. And I am super excited to uh, talk to her about social determinants of health. You're absolutely right. She is an incredible individual. She and I and you, we've worked together for the past few years now on several projects, which include uh, some publications, event planning, and more importantly, her research. Um, She is definitely a great friend, a colleague, a researcher, and an advocate, not only for all communities, but she's an advocate for future learners as well. So Dr. Carrie Elliott-Revens, welcome. Newly minted PhD, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, and I really appreciate you guys putting together this podcast because I think it's really important that you inform the community about the work that people are doing around here, um, around the social determinants of health. So thank you. Oh, well, you know what? We are really proud of our affiliation with you. You obtained your PhD just here in May 2019. I know that was a journey that perhaps you may think took a long time, but really it, it wasn't that long, was it? <laughs> Well, it took like four years, um, but it felt more like 24. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I graduated here from UNC Charlotte in May with the PhD in public health sciences. So I'm really excited to be finished and to start being able to use some of those skills to implement things in the community. Well, Drew, before we take a deep dive into Carrie's research and passion for social justice, we should probably let our listeners know a little bit more about Dr. Carrie Revens. Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. Well, Dr. Carrie Revens is a community-based health researcher with expertise in mental health, population health change, immigrant health, and evaluation. Carrie currently works as a consultant for Common Good Data Consulting, LLC. She works alongside you, Drew. That's right. She has just joined Common Good Data, and I'm so thrilled to be working with her on a number of projects in the Charlotte area. Excellent. We'd love to hear about that here um, on today's podcast. She has more than five years of experience conducting quantitative and qualitative research and disseminating findings at national and international meetings, as well as in peer-reviewed journals. Carrie is also a certified health education specialist with more than 10 years of experience in the planning, implementation, and evaluation of school, community, and corporate health and wellness programs. She also has experience as a middle school health teacher, university lecturer, and a personal health coach. Carrie received a Bachelor of Science in Health Education from Appalachian State University. Go Mountaineers! I'm a Mountaineer myself. A Master of Science in Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Public Health at the University of Bristol in the UK. And like she mentioned, most recently this past May 2019, a PhD in Public Health Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Once again, welcome Dr. Carrie Revens. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. It's really wonderful that you are joining us um, here today on the show. And there's so much for us to talk about regarding your research, your interests, what you've been passionate about over these past few years. You've been conducting research over these past four years to provide awareness, resources, and connectivity for our immigrant and Latinx communities, correct? Yes, that's correct. So I'm hoping you can talk more about that, but more importantly about CBPR, community-based participatory research. And we also want to hear about your dissertation. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with CBPR, can you tell us a little bit about what it is 
and how it helped you support communities in need. Sure, I would love to. I'm I'm actually very excited to talk about CBPR because I think more people should understand what it is and be aware of it. So as you already mentioned, Roger, CBPR is Community-Based Participatory Research. And basically, it's a community-driven approach to research. So we take different approaches and strategies in doing our work than traditional research. Everything is centered around the community itself, and that is from identifying the problem or the need all the way through designing a program, implementing the program, disseminating the findings, everything all the way through the community has input in that process. CBPR has been very effective, especially in minority communities and communities that have often historically been marginalized. And the reason for that is because CBPR helps give people a voice. It's especially important in some populations that aren't often heard or can be overlooked or maybe understudied. Uh, So CBPR is an equal partnership between the research team and the community where the community members really feel that they're valued and heard. The other really important part of that is there's a shared power balance. So we really work towards tipping the scale on the balance of power where academics or researchers make all the decisions and instead the community members actually make the decisions. The researchers there are there to help guide the process and provide expertise and data and measurement and some of those sort of things. But the community members provide their expertise and what the community actually needs, what they currently have, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, and especially uh, culture is very important too. So the community members are going to be your experts on the culture of that group. So it's really important, especially when working with a group of a different culture, such as Latinos, which is the group that I've worked, had the most experience with. It's really important that you go through the community using these approaches to ensure cultural sensitivity and that you are being respectful to different cultural practices and customs. In building upon that, the dissertation I conducted, I I know you've mentioned and wanted to know a little bit more about that. I actually used CBPR to conduct my PhD dissertation. The reason I did that is because I worked with Latino communities and I am not Latino. I am a white female. So I'm an outsider to that community. So I wanted to be very respectful and build a relationship of trust with the Latino community through doing this research. I started building my relationship about four years ago when I first started the PhD here at UNC Charlotte in 2015 by working with Camino Community Center. For those people who aren't familiar with it, Camino Community Center um, is a holistic nonprofit health and wellness agency serving mostly Latinos, most of whom are first generation, meaning they were born in another country and then moved here. Most of them are Spanish-speaking. Not all have um, health insurance and not all have documentation to be here. So Camino has been built as a place of trust and of safety for these people that can come regardless of documentation status, regardless of insurance or any other barriers that they're able to come and receive care. The care is culturally appropriate and it's bilingual. So I did my dissertation by partnering with Camino. Several years ago, I started by helping Camino do data collection, data management, and evaluation of some of their projects. So I started volunteering there, getting to know the staff, getting to know the clients, pretty much helping out wherever I was needed. That's how I started building my relationship of trust. Everything you do in CBPR is built upon the trust that you have with the community. So I worked for several years with Camino, and then when Dr. DeHaven, Mark DeHaven, who is my advisor and was my dissertation chair for this project, when he first started working at Camino, he had plans to do some diabetes research or some heart disease research. And the executive director at that time, Wendy, was like, "Those are recognize that those are significant problems, but the number one issue that she identified was mental health. So there was a primary care clinic in place, but there were not mental health services. So there are a waiting list of people being referred for services with nowhere to go. Folks may have been coming in for other physical 
medical needs such as blood pressure or perhaps um, uh, weight gain or just just things in general, like just general things, right? Right. And there was a need that was identified in regards to their mental wellness. Right. right? But there was no mental wellness program. Exactly right what you said. They could have been coming in for a number of different issues. And the physician recognized that there were symptoms of a mental health issue and were referring them for services, but there was really nowhere to refer them to. Again, with most people being Spanish-speaking, there are very few providers in Charlotte that are Spanish-speaking. And if there are, they are expensive and you need insurance. So for this population, there are so many. So Camino, in partnership with UNC Charlotte, started a mental health program where the students provide the services to patients for free. Students are doing it as part of their internship or practicum. They're bilingual. They're trained on cultural competency. And then these patients are being able to receive the treatment that they need. My role in that was that I actually evaluated that program. So I helped collect the data, analyze it to see the, the effect of the program. That is another way that I was able to gain the trust of the staff at Camino because they recognized that I was invested and that I had a passion for this work. From there came my dissertation project. I knew that we needed to do more around mental health, and I decided that I really wanted to take a strength-based approach to mental health. With the climate that we have right now, the political climate, um, it's not always a safe place for immigrants, Latino immigrants. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of negativity in the media and other places. And I really wanted to do something that would promote the positive aspects of this population. So resilience looks at the protective factors that help people cope and overcome their difficult experiences. What I saw when I worked at Camino is so many people that were just so hopeful, happy, so grateful, just all of these things that just flooded out of them. And I wanted to learn more about that. So I decided to look to see about their resilience levels, because we know all of the barriers I just explained that immigrants face. But in spite of that, they seem to be so hopeful. So I wanted to understand more about that and determine what factors actually influence whether or not they're able to cope from stressful experiences. Real quick, you mentioned trust. And I know, Drew, you and I have had many conversations about developing trust and how do you, it's more than just having rapport. It's it's the development of trust, not only with individuals at an agency, like Carrie mentioned, she gained the trust of, of the staff who work closely with immigrant and Latinx uh, communities. But because of that, Carrie gained the trust of the community itself because the community trusts Camino. Mm -hmm. Community trusts individuals who work at Camino. And once they started seeing Carrie be present and show up, because I know that you showed up for a lot of events. It wasn't just you were being a student who wanted to do research on a community. You really wanted to do research with a community. So I know there were many events that you just showed up and you had said earlier, you, you don't speak Spanish. And and as you, you guys know, I teach a, a course, a social practice with, with Latinx communities course. And I tell students like you don't have to speak Spanish or know Spanish to help the Latinx community. So we definitely appreciate the fact that you just showed up and you just wanted to be part of that. So Drew, what do you think about this concept of trust here and how, how important it is in Carrie's research with Latinx communities? Well, I think Carrie's probably the expert in that. But what I would say is that as an observer of Carrie's work and following along in this process, to me, that trust is also accompanied by a sense of solidarity. That is that Carrie had a shared interest with the community in bringing this, this project to fruition and then that everybody kind of had a shared interest in uh, and seeing that project make its way through. And also hoping that sense of shared mission and purpose with it was really important as well. 
So, Carrie, I'm curious, too, about your approach to, to diving into community-based work. And can you talk a little bit maybe back in your career about some experiences that you had that led you to take on the work that you're doing today, and particularly your dissertation research? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to go back and just for a second to highlight something that Roger said that was so important, that CBPR is about doing research with communities, not on communities. So I think that's a really important distinction to make. To be honest, CBPR is something that I had never heard of until I started the PhD program at UNC Charlotte. And that was because I just happened to be lucky enough to be paired with Dr. Mark DeHaven, who is a very experienced CBPR researcher who did years of work in Dallas around community medicine and improving the social determinants of health there. So I was assigned to be his graduate assistant and started to learn from him more and more about CBPR. And it didn't take me long to realize that that's exactly where I fit. My past experiences were all in the community. I'm a health educator. So I had already worked in community health with people more on an individual level, helping people make changes to live healthier lifestyles, working in corporate health and wellness, and even working as a teacher, trying to help students understand the, you know, the effects of substance abuse or about eating fruits and vegetables and the importance of that. So even though I had a variety of different experiences, they were all centered around people, either the student or the adult or whoever I was working with. So I know I wanted to be someone who works with people and collaboration. I always like to collaborate in groups with multi multidisciplinary groups to work towards a goal. And so that's just part of health education and public health. So to me, this was a perfect way to bring together my passion for working in the community with my passion for research, which... I discovered my passion for research during my master's program, which I did at the University of Bristol in the UK. And that was my first exposure to research. So that's where I learned my initial methods and got some experience working there on a couple of studies on physical activity and the environment. The reason that I enjoyed it is because I feel that the data, with data, it actually tells a story. So it can show you the impact of a program, whether or not something's working, or it can show you a lot about a neighborhood and why people are or are not engaging in certain behaviors. So I knew I had some interest in research. So CBPR just kind of brought all of that together. A couple other interesting things in my past. So I know I have people ask me this a lot because I've mentioned I'm not Latino and I'm not bilingual. So people will ask me, what made you interested in working with the Latino population? Several years ago, in 2013, I actually accompanied my best friend on a trip to Ecuador. She is from Ecuador. She's an immigrant, but she moved here when she was three. And her dad is Ecuadorian. Her mom's American. But her parents now, they lived in the U.S. until her and her brother were finished with school. And now they moved back to Ecuador. So I went with her to Ecuador to do a volunteer trip. Her and her mom started a nonprofit where they were trying to increase access to books. They were setting up libraries, trying to increase access to computers, all of these things in very, very rural areas in Ecuador. I was working with the kids, and I just absolutely fell in love with the kids there. They were all just so grateful for to be able to check out one book from a library. They were all just so sweet, and, and it just struck something in my heart that I realized, okay, I have really have an invested interest here in this population. I went back a couple of other times to Ecuador to do some more projects. So I initially thought that I was going to work towards international or global health so that I could work with people from different countries. And then I realized that I could very easily just be right here in the U.S. and work with immigrants and people who are coming from other countries who may have specific needs that are different from those of us that are born in the U.S. Also, my experience is traveling in Ecuador, and I also did a project for a couple of months in Nepal in a very rural area. 
I lived in the UK for two years, which I know the UK is very similar to the US, but it's still far away from home. It's a different culture and everything else. But I think my experiences being in a foreign country, not being able to speak the language, not being able to talk with my family, being so far away really hit home to me too. So I feel that not anywhere near on the same level, but to some small extent, I can empathize with some of those feelings of, you know, feeling lost, feeling out of your comfort zone, feeling like you really wish you really need some extra help and some support. So I think all of those things kind of shaped me into be this CBPR researcher working with Latino communities to try and help figure out how we can better provide social support for the communities in need, and especially for people um, after they've moved here to the U.S. and they've left their home and a lot of their familiar things um, behind and often their family members, too. So I want to be a part of helping them find those social support systems here. Yeah, Carrie, that's amazing. I think that the community definitely is very fortunate to have individuals like yourself who are vested and interested in health outcomes for that community. And and I do appreciate the fact that you want to continue to move forward with this type of work, even after you've completed your PhD and you're done with your dissertation. I know you're looking at having some more publications out of that. So we, we definitely want to encourage you to to keep moving forward and help out a community that is still so much in need of that type of support and advocacy. I want to go back to, or I want us to talk a little bit about this resilience in Latino immigrants, a research that you conducted. I have an infographic uh, sheet here that I know we'll put up on our website whenever the podcast is launched. Our listeners can view this. Here it says, resilience is the ability to bounce back from stress and can lead to better mental health outcomes. And you conducted a study to find out what factors are associated with resilience in Latino immigrants. And you tested these four factors, social support, religion, family support, and ethnic identity. And so just a little bit more background, again, all this will be posted on our, on our website. Um, Latinos in Charlotte making up 13% of the population, fastest growing community, more than white and black populations, grew 28% from tw- uh, 2010 to 2017, 68% are immigrants, 100,000 are undocumented, exposure to chronic stress, language barriers, poverty, violence, persecution, discrimination, at an increased risk for developing mental health disorders and less likely than any other group to seek mental health treatment due to the stigma, uh, language, and cultural barriers. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your findings, what you discovered? Yeah, absolutely. While I talk about this, I would also like to mention that the way I was able to do this work, this CBPR study, was, I know I mentioned um, Camino Community Center was my partner, but what I did was form a community advisory board, which was made up of people who are Latino themselves, most of whom were actually first-generation immigrants, bilingual, and who were either staff at Camino or part of the university and had either lived the experience of immigration or worked very closely for many, many years with other people who had. So these were my experts in the community and the culture. They're the ones who were the voice for the community. They helped design the study. They helped me figure out what questions to ask. I did, of course, use validated and reliable instruments but they helped inform how we would ask certain questions. They helped me determine some things, whether we should include or not. For example, should we ask people about their immigration status or not? And those type of things, which ultimately we decided not to do because we didn't want to elicit any fear or discomfort in anyone. But the community advisory board members, which by the way, Roger was one of those um, members. He was amazing. I trained them on how to collect the data, and they actually went to Camino and collected the data for me, all in Spanish. So we had a survey instrument that measured family support, social support, religion, and ethnic identity. 
Again, all of those were pre-existing surveys. They were already valid, reliable, translated into Spanish. But we asked them aloud, in-person, in-person interview style, and people gave us their responses. We ended up having 128 Latino immigrants complete a survey at Camino Community Center, which, from my understanding, really blew a lot of people's minds. (laughs) People seemed to be very surprised that we were able to get that many people. And the way that we did it, again, all comes down to trust. Camino has established itself as a safe place, so people felt very safe and comfortable. And honestly, even though we didn't ask about immigration status, a lot of people disclosed that to us anyway just because they felt so comfortable and safe. So we did these in-person surveys, and what we found is that the biggest predictor of resilience in Latino immigrants was social support. And this means social support from spouses, from friends, and from church members. The way that we were able to dig a little bit deeper and find out more about that social support was conducting some focus groups. So we took the 128 people who did the survey and took a sample of those and asked them if they would come back to Camino a second time and do a focus group. The focus groups were also conducted by my community advisory board members, and they were conducted in Spanish. From that, we found that social support was so important. Just having somebody that you can talk to, having somebody that you can rely on if you have a problem, someone that you can just go out to dinner with, somebody that you can hang out with. It wasn't always about venting your problem out. Sometimes it was just having that person to be there for you. Camino came up as a source of social support, the staff there and being able to be connected to resources. Another huge form of social support for this group was church. So many people mentioned that the members of their church, their church family, were now more like their family. A lot of the family members were back home and maybe they were far away. Maybe they didn't want to talk with them and bother them with their problems. A few people told us that. But this church family became a, a place where they could connect. The whole entire thing just centered around connectivity. Religion was also a very important predictor of resilience. And through the focus groups, we found out that that was through faith. So many people talked about their faith in God and just knowing that everything would be okay because they have faith in God. Reading scripture and prayer were also ways that they found sources of comfort and was almost like a calming for them during difficult times. So what we take away from this is that it is very, very important that Latino immigrants feel that they're connected to other people within their community. And it doesn't have to necessarily be other Latinos. It could be anybody else, but having feeling people they can connect with, people they can talk to. But other things that came out from this is that that is very difficult to achieve when you go places and everything's in English and you can't find things in Spanish or you can't find a person who speaks Spanish or when you don't know where to access resources and support. These people all knew about Camino because we recruited them from Camino. There are still numerous people out there who probably don't know about Camino or other places they can go for support. So we really need to start doing a better job of promoting some of these community centers and other places and creating more of a social support, peer support systems or something where, um, where people feel that they can connect with others. That helps them be able to cope with stress, which is directly linked to their mental health outcomes. If you had higher levels of social support, you then had higher levels of resilience and lower levels of psychological distress, which we also measured um, with our study. So that's sort of the brief summary of what we found and why I think that's so important. What were some of the experiences that folks who were part of the study that they were able to connect with other individuals in that focus group? Um, I call that sort of connected experiences, right? I know earlier you mentioned that perhaps it doesn't have to be where somebody has to vent to somebody to feel comfort, to feel safety. But I also feel like what brings people together at times or what 
what helps them become a bit more vulnerable, it's the connected experiences. And I know that for some individuals in the focus group, that connected experience was their immigration journey. Was some of that discussed within the, the, the focus groups about that shared, that connected experiences, the shared journey? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's actually one of the reasons we chose to do focus groups rather than individual one-on-one interviews, because we had hoped that people would feel more comfortable hearing that other people went through similar things. So we did talk about the immigration experience, why people moved, things that they experienced whenever they they first got to the U.S. And a lot of people felt, I think, felt united in the fact that most people talked about moving in order to provide a better life for their family and their children. Again, for the comfort and, you know, so that people would feel comfortable. I actually wasn't in the room for the focus groups. It was only done by the advisory board members. But you could, I could read through the transcripts of the focus groups that people seemed to be agreeing with one another. And yeah, you know, I came here because I wanted a better life for my kids too, that sort of thing. So a lot of people were coming for similar reasons. I think there were a lot of similar experiences in terms of language barriers and not being able to communicate when they needed help. A few people actually did talk about reaching out and seeking help, but being put on a waiting list or not being able to communicate. So I do think the immigrant experience is what brought these people together, and they were able to sort of bond over that. The other thing that we did in the very beginning of the focus groups, we had food. So we had a taco bar so that people could come in when they first got there, go ahead and make their tacos and just sort of hang out and socialize. We wanted to do that so people would get to know each other and feel more comfortable. To be completely honest, I probably can't give you as much insight as to how much they shared and what what all they had in common because they were speaking in Spanish and I could not understand everything they were saying. So that's something I'm working still on is learning my Spanish. But there was definitely this shared experience, and they were able to sort of elaborate on what each other was saying. Uh, And I think that they felt pretty excited and grateful to have the chance to share their voice. You could visually see that, even though you weren't able to understand what they were saying linguistically. As an observer, you could tell, wow, people are connecting. Uh, There's dialogue. There's laughter. Or there's, yeah, you could kind of see their their body language or facial expression. Absolutely. Um, I didn't see anybody who really seemed like they didn't want to be there or felt uncomfortable. I think the food, you know, and the socializing time really helped. Carrie, I think that is so interesting the way that you have been able to kind of, you know, use this method of research to talk about a really important concept, which is the link between these social factors, like how well you know people in your neighborhood or in your church community or your neighbors, and how that is linked directly to someone's um, health outcomes. And so I wanted you to kind of talk about that a little bit. Why is it that we think that one's relationships with other people would be related to resilience and then in turn to uh, mental health outcomes? Yeah, well, I think the social determinants of health, I know a lot of people hear, hear that and they think about place, that where someone lives, the place really determines their health. But when we hear the word place, it's, we're not just talking about the physical environment. We're talking about the social environment as well. So having access to other people that you share common interests with, people that you can do things with, that is a stress relief. So if we're talking about resilience, being able to go out and hang out with your friend can relieve stress. Also, being able to call somebody when you have a problem is another stress reliever. One of the, the risk factors, I think, for, for stress and depression and some of the other mental health disorders is, you know, is feeling alone and feeling isolated. So I think it's really important that you have these social connections to other people so that you don't feel that you're all alone on your own island without anyone that you can reach out to for help. So we can see, you know, through the focus groups and things that they were saying, it just had a lot to do with feeling like there's someone that you can rely on. 
and somebody who's close by so that you can also spend time and do things together. I could tell from what they were talking about that the connectivity they felt with people at church had a lot to do with the fact that they saw those people every week. So they became their friends. And they said, now, when I go to church, if I wasn't there last Sunday, somebody will ask me, hey, where were you last week? Are you okay? How's your family? Just feeling like people care about them. That does a lot for, for your mental health and how you're feeling. So I think having these connections, whether it be at church or whether it be at a gym or a community center or at work, just somewhere where you go, where you feel that you are part of something, you're part of a group of people. It determines resilience that we saw here, but we also know it determines so many other indicators with physical health as well. I think the connectivity is really what brings it all back together in terms of affecting your health. I think that the way you talked about connectivity is so important, and the connection between connectivity and health is just critical and really gets at this core understanding of what we mean by the social determinants of health. So, you know, many of our listeners are probably interested to know how they can take your research and bring that into their own work or their own practice, wherever they may be. So what are some of the key takeaways that you would say are important for people who are working with and alongside Latino communities with respect to um, health and well-being? I think it's really important that helping professionals make sure that they can connect their patients, their clients, whoever it is that they're working with, with the resources that they need, with resources that are actually feasible for that population. So bilingual, affordable, things that they can actually access. I think another important takeaway from this is that we really could do some work here around peer support groups, forming groups of people who can have that place where they connect so that for people who maybe don't go to church or don't feel this somewhere else, they can feel it within their community. This conversation really makes me think of social capital because we're talking about connectivity and, you know, who you know and who you can reach out to and that sort of thing. And there are two different types of social capital. Uh, There's bridging and bonding. And the reason I'm talking about this is because what that means, bonding social capital is basically the connectivity you feel with the people around you within your community. And bridging social capital is being able to make connections externally outside of your community. And what we know about that, if someone doesn't feel connected within their own community, it's going to be very difficult for them to reach out for an external source of support. So if they are already feeling so overwhelmed, so much stress, so much anxiety, or whatever other things that they are feeling, that they don't really have it in them to reach out somewhere externally for support. That's what bridging and bonding social capital means. So before we can really start expecting to see more people going in for treatment for things that they need, we need to make those connections within the community. So that's where I want to come back to the idea of peer support groups or some sort of social support interventions right there within people's communities that bring them together. They can be centered around food. They can be centered around dance. Um, They definitely need to be culturally appropriate. Music, Zumba. Those are the type of things that Camino does. So I know I keep talking about Camino, but that's because they have established this relationship in the Latino community that no one else really has yet, or at least no one that I'm I'm aware of. And um, that's not to say that there isn't other people that are doing great work, but we need to see more places like that, more institutions devoted to specific population groups, not just Latinos but so many other groups as well, because we see that these groups are continuously marginalized and experience significant health disparities because of the social determinants of health, because they aren't connected to other people, because they have lower income, lower education, and all of those things are all intertwined. 
So my takeaway would be that we need to start creating more spaces where Latinos and other minority groups can feel that they are part of a community and that they have people they can connect with. I think we need more researchers like you, Carrie. Oh, um, well, thanks. <laughs> and you, Drew. Uh, you know, here, I myself have been fortunate enough to work alongside not only Drew, but Carrie over the last few years through some publications, through presentations, and through this podcast. My hope is that whoever is out there listening, and maybe they feel this urge to do more, whether it's within this community here or just maybe internationally, but I just encourage people to do it. Uh, Don't just think that you can't because of a barrier, for example, in this case, a language barrier. Carrie may not speak Spanish, but she is definitely making an impact in a community that so much needs advocacy and social justice. Real quick, because I know we want to make sure that we honor um, your time here, but your dissertation, your research, 17 countries were represented in the data, like individuals who who came and were were part of your research. 17 countries were represented. Mexico, individuals from Mexico, 40%. South America, 15%. Central America, 27%. And then the Caribbean, 18%. That's a lot of people who came out. You know, you said earlier about 100 and what'd you say? 20. 28, yeah. 28 individuals came out for this. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's really exciting um, to have that many different countries represented. Because if you, another reason that I did this research, of course, it was based in the community and it, it was because I wanted to make the impact here. But, you know, as a researcher, I also have to consider what research has already been done. And Latinos are so understudied in all literature surrounding health, but especially mental health. And then when you look, try to look, and distinguish U.S.-born Latinos from immigrant Latinos. Immigrants are even less studied. And most of the literature I found, there were several studies that were conducted just with Mexican immigrants. And then there were some studies that were a mix. But I didn't see a lot of other countries represented. And I know that there is a greater, you know, percentage of Mexicans in the area, but the other, other countries and groups are on the rise. So I was really excited to see that we were able to represent several different countries and cultures I realized that using the word Latino is just, you know, grouping together so many different regions, areas, countries, and cultures together. And my hope is that as we move research forward, we're able to start doing more specific studies with each of each of these different groups, kind of like some researchers have done with uh, Mexican immigrants. But I was excited to see that people were more than happy to participate in this study when they were approached. They were either asked to do it while they were at Camino, accessing other services like the clinic or the food pantry. Uh, Camino has a really great food pantry that a lot of people go there to get their groceries. Um, So we would talk to people while they were waiting in line to go in the food pantry. And then some people also came from Camino Church, which Rusty Price, who's the founder and president of Camino, is also the pastor of that church. So some of these people are um, from church. But they were more than happy to do it because they they had that trust of Camino. And I think also I had several people thank me for doing this research and expressing to me how happy they were that their voice could be heard and that they were included. I think that from what I heard from the people who participated, because some people did speak some English and, would you know, we would talk a little. I don't want it to seem as if I didn't talk to anybody. I did. I just didn't do the interviews and focus groups. But people had expressed to me their gratitude because they felt that they had typically been left out of research or anything like this. And I think another important part of this is that I'm giving these findings right back to Camino and to the Latino community. 
the infographic that Roger mentioned, I created that so that I could hand the findings back to the people who participated. And it would be in a simple format that's very easy to understand. It doesn't use scientific jargon. Um, It has pictures and graphics. So I haven't yet published this in a peer-reviewed article, a journal article, because my number one priority was getting the findings back to the community. And that's what CBPR is. So again, it's different from traditional research. We don't come in and do a study and then just leave. Typically, it's a long-term relationship, and we're trying to build off of this. So I'm currently working with Camino to see what we can do next to build off of my study findings to keep this work going. I'm going to shift gears real quick. Uh, Carrie, can you tell us, because you've done such amazing work and you're really embedded in what you do, tell us something that you enjoy doing that is not related to research, that is not related to what we just talked about. What, what kind of keeps you going on the other end? Oh, there are so many things that I enjoy other than doing research. Um, but I would say one of my favorites is probably hiking. You and Drew both know my husband, Steve. So I'm married, my husband, Steve, and then we have two dogs, Noda and Irish, and we love to just take them and go hiking. So that's probably one of my favorite things to do. That gets me outside. It keeps me sane. Uh, and it keeps me in, you know, getting some some type of exercise. Thank you so much, Carrie. So for people who would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can do that? Um, well, they can find me on LinkedIn, um, Carrie Revens. My na- I know my information, my name will be posted on the site with podcasts. And also they can email me. And my email address is kellio15 at uncc.edu. So I'd be happy to speak with anybody who wants to learn a little bit more. And if there is anybody who's interested in doing community-based work or CBPR, my number one piece of advice would just be to show up. Start showing up in that community. Be a part of it. Go to the community events. Roger mentioned, I did things I didn't have to be there for. I helped with their health fairs. I came on Saturdays. I was there for the Zoombathon. Just show up. Show that you are invested and that you care. And they will see that reflected in you, if especially if you're genuine about it. Um, and then they will welcome you with open arms and you'll be able to start getting in there and figuring out how you can help. Carrie, thanks again for your time and commitment to creating healthy and thriving communities through your work. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I also just wanted to give a quick shout out to Drew because I gave the shout out to Roger earlier for being on my community advisory board. Drew was also on my dissertation committee, so he was amazing in helping guide me through this project. So I thought he deserved a shout out as well. Carrie, you are too kind, and it was an absolute joy. So thank you all so much. And so to access this episode, along with notes and information about Dr. Carrie Revens, CBPR, and information about her research, navigate to thehelpinghandspodcast.com. And thanks to our listeners for their curiosity and willingness to learn something new. Until next time, remember, strong always. Always strong.